Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. In this episode, we talk about Netflix culture that was outlined in a book, No Rules Rules, written by Netflix founder and CEO Reed Hastings. This book came out last year in 2020, and it has had a truly profound impact on leadership teams around the world, game company leadership teams included. And what has been happening is companies are attempting to adopt pieces of this Netflix culture. The challenge is you can't take a piece of a culture like Netflix, which is very unique, and insert it into a totally different setting and expect it to work. So we talk about that, but we also talk about the pitfalls of the Netflix culture as it is truly a ruthless organization, both in execution as well as in the way they treat their employees. Now, as always, we appreciate all the feedback that we get. So please keep sending it our way. LinkedIn DMs or email at info at deconstructoroffun.com. And also, I want to give a shout out to my co-host, Sophie Vo. She has her new podcast, Rise and Play. And my other co-host, Joachim Akren, has had his podcast and his blog, Elite Game Developers, out for a couple of years now. And both of these Rise and Play, as well as Elite Game Developers, just absolutely fantastic content when it comes to company building. Anyway, without further ado, final shout out to our fantastic sponsors, Facebook, Iron Source, and Apps Flyer. I think what's What's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky, you your game is an instant hit, it's resonating with users, but for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zella, VP of Marketing at Iron Source. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do, do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing, 
It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. Hey folks, and welcome to the podcast. We got fantastic guests, marvelous Sophie Vo, Voodoo Berlin studio lead and founder of Rise and Play. Welcome back, Sophie. Thank you. And we got powerful Joachim Akren, founder, investor, blogger, podcaster. What do you not do? So, mm. so welcome, welcome back, Joachim. Thanks, Miska. Yeah, that's that's a lot of work. Yeah, exactly. You you retired and you do more work than you were doing work <laughs> when you were working. No, so I think no. I'm gonna give you an F on the uh, the whole retirement stuff. But, but <laughs> yeah, I I never thought about retiring, but yeah, <laughs> maybe I should now now retire finally. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Um, today, we're going to talk about a book that we all were reading during the past month, which was No Rules Rules. So it's the uh, Reed Hastings. Of course, everybody knows Reed, CEO of Net founder and CEO of Netflix. Before that, he founded some company that he sold for 700 million. So clearly uh, a failure <laughs> around there. And um, and it all kind of kicked off with his 127 page culture deck, which was distributed you know, around the Internet some eight to 10 years ago. It, it talked about his learnings from the first company, then the Netflix being his second company, and all the learnings are kind of around four things. So the talent density, candor feedback, removal of policies, and leading through context. What do you guys thought about the book? Sophie, what, what, what was like, what were your first thought when, when reading through this? So I read also the, for the context, the first book um, from Patty McCord, I think uh, culture of empowerment uh, and responsibility, something like that. So it was also, um, I would say, follow up reading this book and um, how things went as well for the company a few years after. So it was super interesting. So I, at first, of course, when I uh, I listened to the book, actually, so just for the context here, I take a lot of things away that could be applied, whether in a, our organization or in my team. So a lot of good thinking, a lot of focus on the culture and also very controversial like ways of building a culture like a lot of you can feel in the book there's really a discipline of following the culture uh, that we will talk, of course, more about and things that don't work for everybody. Right. So it always like when I read the book, I have always mixed feelings where I'm, I'm attracted to it. It uh, sounds exciting. Uh, sounds uh, nice to try, but I, there's a fear as well, like, would it work for everyone, even like everyone already in my team? Is it really too pushy? You know, it's very high performing culture. So for me, how it um, impacts on me, it's it's exciting, it's attractive, and it's a bit scary at the same time. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a good yeah. way to put it. Joachim, what do you think? Yeah, I think like, I agree with what you both said, uh, it's sort of like I get the, this feeling that Reed Hastings is sort of like very fanatical about 
approaching you know this this very like organizational like engineering and the culture engineering and also like very much nurturing that i, I think i love all the topics that he covers in the book um I, I think like you can apply so much of that to small startups as well this is like something that people might you know look at hey it's netflix that's like one of the big sort of like uh, bigger tech companies in the same group as Amazon, Facebook, you know, Microsoft and those. But I think like all these sort of principles that they're talking about with feedback, with the high talent density, they're all applicable to small companies as well. So very much to gaming for sure. And and one fact that about this book that I really love is read sort of like putting all this work in creating this book because it's, it's a part of that work that he does to uphold what matters for him uh, in a company. Uh, I think like many CEOs are writing these manifestos or credos to, to guide people in a company, but like writing a book is really hard work. And I think this format is something that I'm really admiring that he's putting in. Yeah, I, I, for the context of this book, like I'm, I, I kind of tried to zoom out and think about why what made this book and like what was the other mindset when when we was doing this book and the way i, I kind of looked at it is like okay he had his first company i already forgot what the company's name it was a tech company and by all means it was successful but in his opinion it wasn't like it wasn't what he wished to do and there was a lot of things especially on the organization side not on the tech side not on how you know the outcomes they i think they ipo'd or sold the company it was anyway a 700 million dollar exit but he was unhappy with the way things went down. And Netflix is his second company. And that's why I think he was so laser focused on the on the culture and the organization, because he felt that's where he failed in the first one. And that's why he's so focused on building the organization, because I doubt that any first time founder would be so focused on culture and organization and they're more focused on the product and actually succeeding in the market. So I think that's the kind of a context for a second time founder or a, or a third time, third time, fourth time founder looking for beating what what he or she did in his with his last company. So I think, yeah, definitely. It's like, you know, you can you can zoom into the areas that actually do matter for a CEO founder yeah. uh, versus like, hey, let's you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time on product now. Like you want to hire people for that area and you want to be, you know, looking after the whole big picture, like the whole like endeavor that you're going after. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and, and I would categorize this book almost like an advanced leadership book mm. because it, it focuses on almost like the, yeah, like, you know, the next step, the billion dollar company, not the, you know, the, the first, the first success. So anyways, um, what were the most impactful learnings from the book for you? Who wants to go first? I go ahead, Yakim, uh, Yeah, I, I, I wrote so much notes. So I, I usually read with Kindle and I take highlights and, and I go through the highlights later on. And, and it's like a process where I just look at what, what I was sort of highlighting and picking up from there. I think the the high talent density concept is really hard. 
especially when you're in a startup, you have limited runway to figure things out. You want to already engineer a team early on uh, that can build a game and you can measure that game and you can kill the game with confidence as well and start another project. But you need to have like a group of people who can do that. But then you still want to be performing at the top level. Uh, so you can't really like, like it's, you can't bring in people who won't be uh, performing on the same level as the founders. I think it's always like you're going up on the bar of, of quality and of performance. So I think like all the lessons there regarding like how, how you sort of like you hire people and then you figure out that the fit wasn't there I think there's so many ways to to let go of people versus uh, maybe the term term letting go of somebody is not the right one, but but like being very honest and frank about like what's going on when you're coming into a company, what are the expectations? So we're gonna get into this a bit more, yeah. I, I guess, in this podcast. But I, I think this is a topic that I can't, you know, talk too much about. I I, I personally. The, like that was the most impactful for me as well, the talent density. I mean, we, we talked about talent density and a lot of companies do talk about it. But my initial feeling about the talent density coming in from the, you know, the Netflix of the world or the supercells of the world that are, you know, pretty similar in terms of a culture. And I think we're going to touch upon that later. I was like, well, yeah, they can do that. They, they have infinite amount of money. They can pay anything. And of course, when you can pay anything, you can get what kind of a talent you want. And I'm a poor startup. I'm a you know small team. I can't afford getting the talent. But then, um, you know, kind of like looking back at my previous experience being in different game companies and, and running different type of teams, as well as the current one, what really came through as I was actually reading this book and we were having some, some challenges in, in the sense that we have some people who are just absolute monsters, if you will, just really, really good, whether on coding side or art side. And then when we bundle them up with people who are above average, who are just good, what ended up happening is not like you would think in math, like you add somebody whose output is, let's say, 100, and then you add a person whose output is 50, that should be 150. But what ended up happening is the output went down to like 195 because the person who was doing 100 had to help the person who was doing 50 so much that the overall output decreased to lower than if you had only one person. And that was the kind of the same thing that I was, as that was happening uh, with my own production, that was the same thing. And I was reading when, when Reed was talking about the two, 2001 bubble, when the VCs cut off all his money and he had to lay off 30% of his company to kind of go through the drought. And everything improved after reducing the, the workforce by 30%. It created the, this very high peer-to-peer -peer accountability. Things got faster done, which doesn't make any sense if you think about mathematically. And his key message there was high talent density encourages employees to perform at their very best. And that was kind of like a big shift in my thinking um, that, that, it, it's it's very important, especially for companies with limited resources, because you can't afford move slowly and you rather want to hire that one person who is really, really good rather than five who are mediocre, you know, even though they could be a cultural fit. What do you think, Sophie? Yeah, definitely for uh, this one, the talent density. It's, uh, it's actually quite interesting to hear both of your point of view, because that's not the one that... Uh, 
like was the main takeaway for me. Although I completely agree now I hear it. So that's why we are here, I guess, with our different perspectives. But for me, I, I'm looking a lot again uh, from a culture point of view. You know, this is uh, kind of my theme. And for me, the main takeaway was really, it's really the foundations of a company, this discipline. I mean, the whole book is about it. All the time they talk about it is really the culture. They even uh, put it uh, visible on their website for whoever has even the thought of joining Netflix. So I think for me, the attention they have, the discipline they have on it and how to communicate, how to verbalize it, all the work that has been done into it is what makes this company as it is. And um, the second part that is very impressive is how they execute uh, the culture they want to build and how it translates. And it's we will talk about that, but I use the word harsh. There's no place for people who are not... Uh, with a buy-in or who believe in the culture or, or are playing by the rules that they have created, right? So it's very focused on high performance. And what I like as well, and I really took as well away from uh, the own culture I built, also inspired, of course, from Netflix, is really a high culture of ownership and responsibility. Mm -hmm. So they are creating a company for adults with adult behavior, and they talk about it very clearly. So they are not here to take care of people. People have to take care of themselves. So very self, I would say, sufficient people joining the company and putting a lot of emphasis on context. So transparency, we talk a lot about that. Where are we going? Why are we doing this? But you are responsible to figure it out and to bring us there as, as people. You know, take care of yourself. Don't ex expect us to take care of you. So that's really interesting where they onboard people who are here uh, really aligned with the mission, with the culture, but all they do then is, you know, just take care of themselves and make this company grow. And they don't want to take responsibility as a company and leadership to, as they say very clearly, make people happy. That's not the intention. They don't care about that. They are not even talking about promotion, etc. It's like you're here to grow the company, make a customer happy, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, the, the, uh, the, the quote in the book is adequate performance gets you generous severance. That is, that is pretty brutal. And, yeah. and you're absolutely right. Like it is a very controversial to many, many type of uh, leadership models, even in Europe, because we, we even when, you, when we think about these groups and big companies, they talk about family. Like we are a family of this and we bring new companies into our family. Like welcome to the family. And in this one, it's the high performance team. It's like a, a football team. If you're not performing, you're out. We're going to get a new one. We're going to get a new one. And we can get new ones because we pay top of the market and because all the best ones are here. So all the best ones want to come here. And this is like a, a total cutthroat, definitely not happy environment. As you said, like there were, there were some interviews that the writer was going through with people who were working in different locations for Netflix. Genuinely stressed. People were genuinely stressed about losing their job pretty much all the time as they were working there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think like the the thing I, I often think about is like how, how explicit can you be when you're hiring people about like what what is expected of you and how do we measure performance uh, here? Uh, if you don't really like be explicit about performance measuring, it's it's going to be this kind of like something is said about you and you're not like hearing about it until it's sort of like too late and things like that. I think the the sports team uh, analog 
if if you think about it it's like everything's very open your performance each each uh, match that happens you, you get like scores <laughs> like you're you're sort of ranked uh, like there's this saying that the eights and the nines don't want to work with the sevens uh it's pro- probably partially um like it, it doesn't always apply but I, i'm i'm sure in this kind of like high performing areas like if you think about a sports team that's how it it works and um like having having this this explicit culture that really like tells you that this is like how we're going to be looking at things i think it would be would help especially if you want want to create that kind of culture yeah transparency was a very big thing uh that they talked about in this book and read even like during the writing of this book he would share it with his whole leadership team like all these paragraphs of the book that is just being under work so i what i what i liked the most not not the most but what i think was a really impactful thing in the transparency was the way they let somebody go so when they let somebody go they didn't do the corporate theater oh you know Joachim had some things in his personal life and he wanted to concentrate more on his kids. So he's kind of like, no, they they were just straight up like, hey, underperformance here doesn't work out like this. Really nice guy, but we had to let him go. Like that type of thing. Yeah. And what it created is it killed all the rumors about what's happening, why it's happening. It just enforced the culture, which is harsh but enforced a very like a result driven culture. And that's the, the kind of like a um, not treating your employees as kids who you can tell different kind of stories, but just giving the hard facts all the time. I think that was amazing. Yeah. I, uh, in the book also, they uh, actually, they support quite well the separation. So it's basically when they talk about it, like, okay, you're, uh, because also in the growth, Netflix, they onboarded people in the early phase that were really helpful to grow the company. And this is where it's harsh. It's like you're no longer um, uh, like adaptable to the environment where we're in this growth phase. And thank you for your services. But now we need to part ways. So they let go actually a lot of people who contributed to the early success and help them find a job somewhere else that yeah. would make them happier because the organization changed. So mm. yes, it's harsh. Uh, yes, it's very explicit. But they follow up and really, like, I would say, genuinely want to help others to find their way out uh, and not, you know, abandoning them completely. So that was also what was interesting. So on one end, like, there are things that are really kind of brutal. Yeah. But there is still a human aspect that is there. Like, it's not you, you know, it's not me, us. It's just we are looking for something different and we will help you to be happier somewhere else in the end. So that's kind of a... Uh, intention is there when they separate. It's quite interesting that part. Uh, that's that's mm. super important. Um, unfortunately, I've you know had to go through those type of scenarios and and help somebody to to find a job, and I think it's it's mandatory. Like you have to do that because you take a responsibility of a person you hire, and even if that person doesn't succeed in the environment that you set up, it might be as much as your fault as the uh, as the person's fault. So you have to you know you worked hard to hire that person. You have to work equally hard to make sure that that person lands on the next place and, and you know, doesn't feel grudged towards you uh, because that creates, on the other hand, bad reputation around your company and hurts your future hiring. So it has to be like mutually agreeable. Yep, didn't fit, but hey, got you a new place, equally 
uh, well-paid, maybe even better, and you're going to be absolutely happy in this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, one thing I want to sort of like add here is like the, the ways to see performance. I, I think like when everybody's at the office, it's more evident. I, I don't know, like if you're working remotely, I think the, the people who aren't performing can maybe like hide a bit like their sort of like performance issues or like, you know, it's more easygoing. I don't know if you, you guys have any thoughts on that. I okay. would actually disagree because working from home, it puts much more emphasis on your output. It puts, because um, like a like few things that I'll just use our companies as an example. So uh, for example, in the dailies, what we do is we don't do dailies throughout the video. We actually do dailies that by the end of the day, you have to write you know, all the things that you've done so that production can take a look and the first thing in the morning can contact, but you actually see what everybody's doing. And, and when people are putting in stuff in the build or where they're drawing, they put in those images, the videos from the game and so forth. So that gives a lot of transparency as well as peer-to-peer -peer accountability. The secondly is with constant play tests that you have in gaming, like, you know, whether they're daily on certain features or whether it's weekly at the, uh, at the end of the week build, if things are not working, it's very clear to know why you know, we can see the commits, we can see all the work that has been done. And thirdly, when you have a very strict process of production where the milestone goals are, are explicit, they're written down and they have been agreed in before, at the end of the milestone, if the milestone has not been completed successfully, and if the person hasn't raised up those issues during the dailies, it hasn't raised up the issues during, you know, weeklies, it's, it's very clear who's, who's, uh, who's trailing behind. And then you do the course correction between different milestones. And if those course corrections dif between different milestones don't work, then, then we, we're in a, in, a, in a tough situation. Now, if yeah. the person is in the studio, it's a little bit different because now you get the other vector, you know, the cultural vector. A person who might not be you know, succeeding so well with his output might be an absolutely perfect cultural fit. Everybody likes that person on lunches. Like he, he or she tells the best jokes. Uh, we have awesome play sessions and he's like a cultural gel. That of course plays a, a role uh, in the keeper test, which we're gonna probably address a little bit later. But what I'm trying to say is when everybody's working from home, the output is even more uh, emphasized because the cultural aspect is de-emphasized. Yeah, excellent points. What do you think, Sophie? Yeah, I, I would actually agree the same where uh, for me, it's um, when you have people on site, it can actually be more, you know, the surface you see and uh, like interaction relationships of people, but it makes it uh, it even more clear the out, uh, outcome, output of uh, of just people in your team when you work uh, remote and uh, actually that's how as, as well we saw working remote when some people were not actually doing the work <laughs> because you have to uh, trust and rely on the system that works well and then the system shows some flaws and holes and then you wonder like what's happening and this is uh, the early signal I would say of your monitoring dashboard is like when there are tasks that are behind there's a little problem. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would agree with that actually in reality, that is quite helpful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's talk about something that you guys disagree because we agree on many things. We kind of like, you know, doubt some things, but what do you disagree about, about Reed's, um, Reed's cultural um, learnings? 
some you know some of the things that he mentioned like things like rockstar salaries uh radical candor the whole policy of immediate feedback that no policy for vacation uh no personal improvement plans like what were the things that that kind of struck you as as something that you wouldn't even you know want to try sophie yeah i could start um so for me again it comes down to culture and uh, that's uh, for uh, for sure something I wouldn't try in my team because that's not how I created it. But again, at Netflix, it looks like uh, from how they describe the culture, it's very customer performance oriented. So you're here to make results. You're here to grow the company. So it's a very selfless culture. So you don't matter. You, your needs and whatever you are going through, it's secondary. You're here you know, to serve the company, customers, uh, performance. And the other point around that is then basically it's, you have to take care of yourself and this is not the place where you will be supported or it creates, for me, the fear is to create a culture where individual performance, you know, where this talent density and you are in the A league, you're among those superstar and you're a superstar yourself. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a jerk, of course, but it's highly competitive. And when I look at games and creation, which is a very collaborative process, you don't know what you will be doing until you do it. So it requires a lot of collaboration, a lot of trust, interaction between people and also safety. I truly believe that if you want to be able to debate, challenge each other in a group, it needs safety. But if you are always competing with yourself, with others to fight for your seat. That's really what I'm afraid of. So I think it works really well for Netflix and for the vision, the mission they have. They are very ambitious. And we are talking here about yeah, a billion dollar level company. And I'm not saying that I don't have, of course, that kind of ambition. But I think for me, this way of working goes against some belief I have in how to work with a group. And it's important to have the safety and that's what can create like this type of culture is that you are asking yourself, am I underperforming? Am I doing this well? Am I on the line? Uh, I have anxiety. I have stress. Can I even talk about it? Or there's no place at all for this. You know, I need to get my uh, things together and just perform. So it, it could be also quite daunting as a culture and very heavy. And that's definitely not what I want to create in uh, the culture I have in my studio. So I think that part, this is where I would not take away from. And I think it's awesome to have you, especially on this, this episode, because when I was going through this, this is not Sophie culture. Like, like your culture <laughs> is more like you're leveling up people. You're taking them, you know, they might not have the, uh, perhaps the, uh, the most relevant experience. They come in and a little bit from the left, left field outside the box. You're bringing them, you're creating this good atmosphere where everybody feels safe to try different things and to kind of work together and everybody's smiling. And then we got this super hyper American culture where it's win, 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 or get the fuck out basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and, and it's good to also understand that this is just one of the culture. Netflix is a successful company, but it doesn't mean that in order to become or be a successful company, you have to follow this culture. There are many ways to succeed. And there are many other companies than Netflix that are succeeding even bigger than Netflix. So I think it's it's good to keep that perception in mind as well. Yeah, yeah a couple of thoughts on my, my angle there. I think like one of the aspects that the book doesn't cover enough about is like how Netflix is 
shifting towards being like a, you know a, like creating films tv shows mm-hmm. like that that creative endeavor and how that shifted the company from you know doing external content running external content under service versus like creating their own and like there's some aspects there but but it still feels like they don't really go into that realm of how that creative spark how they how they set up things on that angle which sort of like is missing for me because i I think that would have been more interesting for from a gaming perspective can you elaborate a little bit because i they do talk a lot about the uh, the hollywood part yeah i think they're more focused on you know the decision making Mm -hmm. aspect and there they cover the hollywood part but they don't really go into like how they work with the the scripting how they create stories like do they do something else that what what for instance ed catmull talks in in creativity inc oh is there other kind of processes so so, so i I understand so you so you wanted to hear more like how they approach to creative process versus how they approach to business process what they do now yeah, I think the whole uh, like decentralization aspect of the book is very sort of like shallow. But wouldn't but... it be wouldn't it be the same way in sort of aspect? Because okay, so kind of taking back, like they have this example of uh, making uh, Icarus happen. So uh, one of the uh, one of the best documentaries on on the the Russian steroids scandal, yeah. um, and they talk about the decision-making around that movie and how there were many bidders. And then this person who's responsible for, for um, documentaries on Netflix is trying to bid, but the bid is going really, really high. And he's trying to kind of get okay from his boss of like, is it like, what should I do? And the boss is like, you do you like, this is your job, not my job. You make the decision. And then he makes the decisions of, of paying significantly more for this documentary and it's not breaking. And he's like all kinds of stress because he overpaid for the documentary. And then things start happening and it's cited in some kind of a, uh, investigation around the Olympics and Russia gets banned and this and this and that. And then the, uh, the documentary becomes like the most viewed documentary um, in, in recent decade. So what I'm trying to say is, is doesn't that type of a same approach apply also to internal? So they are investing into something and the person in charge of investing makes that investment decision and kind of puts her or his head on the chopping block. Yeah, you're right. There, there's actually... Because they have this decision making based on, you know, you being delivered a lot of context uh, by everybody around you, the peers up and down the hierarchy. I think that that area certainly covers a lot of it. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I want a more a deep dive into like the actual like, you wanted to, film like creation. Yeah, the creative, of like, what is your creative process? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I, I think other aspects in this book that I sort of like feel bit tough is like how how the the high salaries that they're paying actually like creates all sorts of behavior um, that is like of course you know the win-win-win culture is there but like how the politics and sort of like uh, sort of like safeguarding your position and role in the company becomes a problem uh, how do they actually like you know go after like there's there's these quotes like you know when um patty who was the the sort of like the one of the early employees uh yeah exactly was was sort of like she left uh 
and there's like a few few lines about like how she left because they had a discussion that she wasn't sort of like air quotes performing anymore uh, but I, I think that's not how it always goes down when you're at, at the top of the, the sort of the food chain probably it's it's not that beautiful um <laughs> you know so <laughs> but yeah like uh, I, I i i want you to say something about that as almost well. seemed like yoki wanted to open up <laughs> on some personal experience but then he kind of backed out so i get it let's not push no, that it's, it's been it's been all good no. <laughs> um sophie anything anything you wanted to add on on things that that kind of stood out as you know not not gonna definitely not gonna do it with my team we have, uh, so it's interesting because of course the Voodoo as well looks a lot into Netflix uh, culture and we are discussing a lot internally as well the things that we'd like to implement. And one thing that has been for sure a deba debate where we are looking into how, how to make it work without breaking the feeling of safety and culture of trust inside the organization is a system of um, performance box. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. So basically you categorize uh, your employees. So there's a system, uh, for example, called Ninebox. And then they are either a category of core players. They are like really high performance and uh, high maintenance sort of. And basically you map your talents mm -hmm. there and you have uh, like on the top and what you have in an organization usually is like not everybody is a star and you have to know who are your core players, who are the <laughs> rising star or stars. I would prefer that this becomes more a management tool. So you organize your own team as a mental model, but I don't see this necessary to share openly, for example, in an organization. So these are the things like the type of discussion where too transparent, I think again, it creates can create insecurity and stress, something that I, I gave a lot of thought into. And I also fought for it as well like sharing like i think it's a great tool to map your talents in your team but i don't think it's one that employees should know about because why is it relevant to know unless you talk in one-on-ones and development conversation yeah. yeah i my first take was <laughs> like when ed catmull's book creativity and came out every company was giving it away to to the management and that is the problem every company was giving it away king zynga supercell you name it all these organizations that are vastly different from each other are giving this book and saying like hey here's the way we are operating and in my opinion that creates immense confusion because you're asking wait are you saying like we should work like pixar but we are not working like pixar and then you have a lot of stress inside the organization because some people who are getting the book are pushing towards this model because the leadership gave the book. And then you have the you know senior management or middle manager who's saying like, no, 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 everything is working as it is. Let's just let's just get inspired by some of the things in this book and let's maybe take a couple of things, but let's not, you know, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's kind of continue. And what I'm trying to say is going half-assed into some other company's culture that you read a book about doing parts of it but not the whole thing not changing your leadership that would bring the new culture not having the leadership actually doing the culture that they are kind of you know proposing i i'm not saying that voodoo is this i'm just saying that i've seen this sort of a 
half-assed adaptation of a culture and it's it's creates so much confusion in the organization yeah yeah i, I think like you need to discuss the ideas yeah. behind yeah. these chapters and it's not like one-on-one sort of like implementation guide so yeah. it's it's more about like how do we make the sort of like the the good things that we're all sort of like picking up from this chapter and apply this to to going forward exactly and and just as this book it talks a lot about leadership through context so you can start changing your organization but you and your organizational culture but you have to give the context to these changes if you're trying to improve your creative process let's say your company hasn't launched much new games or the new games are not really succeeding but you're really good at live operations and there are some issues and then you can start inputting an element of creativity inc because pixar is pretty good at launching movies let's be honest they they're, they got a good track record and pushing out new absolutely fantastic animations. So there might be something, and now you're giving the contest of improving one element of your company. And there you can kind of take like a pick and choose and try one of the things. And people will be working towards the common goal of improving that one area because you gave context where the company needs improvement. That I can buy, but but giving books on leadership and on organization and culture without enough context creates immense amount of confusion and just stress inside the organization where you have read something and you can see that your organization is not doing what the leadership is saying. So I'm going to be a rebel and I'm going to push forward. And then some of them are, are like, I'm going to be a conservative and kind of, you know, keep the structures as it is and, and mm-hmm. so forth and so forth. So, yeah, it's a very good point. And uh, I think I have seen this for with a Pixar book creativity when it was out <laughs> in a company where everybody had to read it and we have let's apply. But um, it, it's then team by team. And I see the same hype now around uh, No Rules Rules because Netflix is very big these days. And uh, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot in the, I think it's a key word I've seen at least three, four times this week in any newsletter. And uh, I do agree that companies as well, we go are going maybe a little too fast in like, okay, let's adopt this and really not re- reflecting fully in, in the culture we want to build and what is useful. So. Um, it's good that you're pointing that out because I didn't, I didn't realize that it was even a movement happening again, and uh, that's probably yeah, yeah. But it actually makes me reflect as well, even more, on the things like why should we apply this? And I'm very critical when there are also changes in the organization. Like why, what does it mean for us? I really need the context to even be able to explain to the team like why it would be useful for us. And it's it's a struggle when it these is. changes happen. <laughs> Yeah, and, and what, what I like about this this book as well, because Reed talks about some of the concepts that they used, like the no vacation policy being an example, and how other company tried to copy it and kind of failed doing that. And he always goes back into like, you have to go through these steps to get to do the next step. Like you can't hop over a step. And in their culture, like it's it starts with the talent density. And I think the the, the talent density concept, it's not for everybody. And it's it, what I mean by that is like it's you can be successful without it. There's plenty of companies that are not that talent dense, but incredibly successful. And driving an organization that has a very high talent density means that as a leader, you have to be a little bit cold because you have to make decisions that are not involved, like like where you have to close down the person. Like if I would be letting go 
I would never let go of Joachim. But if I would let go of Joachim, I would have to have the discussion like Joachim. Like, let's not talk jo- about Joachim as a person. Let's talk Joachim as, um, as a game lead. Like, only that part. Like, let's leave out how nice it is, how much fun we had at the last retreat, how much I like seeing him, how much we like playing, you know, tennis together. Like, let's leave that out. Let's only talk about that. So please erase that. And then that's the type of a cold approach you have to have. And it's not for everybody. And also when you have that type of organization, it's much more fun uh, to be in an organization where you're leveling up people, where people like it and they're happy and they feel safe. Leading that type of organization is nice. I, I would, you know, because your, your team loves you. Like you're creating this organization of smiles. Leading an organization like Netflix, that's not nice. People are afraid. They are stressed out. It's a sink or swim. You're letting people go. New people come in and most likely new, like the, uh, the existing people are not that keen on even like even getting to know them because they're thinking that maybe inside six months, they're going to get fired. Let's wait before I do my emotional investment into actually getting to know this new person who joined. Let's see how he or she sinks or whether swims if 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 you know if they get let go then i haven't invested in becoming friends and it's much easier for me i think that's what the people are 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 thinking about and that's why this type of an organization is actually very hard to lead on a personal level Mm. yeah i I think reed is leading through these kind of books that he's putting out (laughs) like like and and in a sense like I, i give him a lot of credit for for doing that because that's that's very rare for for somebody to to write a book about like how a company is operating, how it should operate, how what what are sort of like the inspirations, what's going on. Um, so I think like when it comes to like giving out these books uh, for everybody in the company, it it should be sort of like the leaders should be the people who've re- really read the book and really sort of like understand what they're getting into. Are they, are they willing to actually like go down that rabbit hole or not? Yeah, 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 it's 100%. Um, all right, let's talk about something that companies would have hard time implementing, in your opinion. Like, you know, so if you mentioned Voodoo as an example, I'm sure that Voodoo is not nearly the only company that is that is implementing this sort of a hard structure of Netflix teams. So what do you guys think is the hardest part when it comes to bringing this sort of a uh, elements or even the holistically this type of a culture sophie or- yeah so i can give at least the example when we started it was really interesting i remember it was the beginning of the year so we as a company decided to have a unlimited holiday policy and again, it's about context and it really came as a surprise. Something that was supposed to be nice and appreciated by teams became as a, a bit of an anxiety. I even saw this as an echo in my team. Everybody was writing me messages on the same day. like, uh, what does that mean? That means we can take holiday anytime, any, anywhere, or no holidays at all, you know? So there was a bit of a wave of panic. <laughs> so that was really interesting. So I, I, I witnessed it actually, where I've always asked myself, do we need it as an organization? What are we trying to fix if we go for unlimited holidays? And so I can here describe the steps of uh, where maybe it didn't go so well at the beginning. And actually that we would should probably do better when we try to apply organizational changes. And it comes down again back to the context. 
So in VNY, I mean, feedback and uh, we get better at this. So we are learning as an organization and I'm really grateful that there's a lot of this ongoing discussion with the leadership that is really important to explain the context. And what was missing is like, why are we doing this? So it was, uh, of course, corrected in a, another communication. Why we went for a limited holiday policy was, again, one key values at Voodoo of our culture is ownership. And it was really to emphasize even more the sense of ownership that we want to remove all the process and bureaucracy. So you don't have to ask one manager, write an email, put in the system to book your holidays. This is, you should be do, uh, using that time to make games. And I really understood actually that when I was explained, and like, so we just want to give you more ownership, you check on yourself. And then you take your holidays and you don't have to go through all the bureaucracy. We want to remove a part of that. And we will remove bureaucracy and other things like salary. And we did a lot of other changes in the organization this year. And once I understood that, then I was able to explain as well to the team. And we had to create internally in our team our own system of how we would book the holidays. So right now I have a notion page with five bullet points. <laughs> how do you book holidays? It started with, and in the end, I told very transparently to the people and team, it's more work on your end, on our end, because you have to think, you have to think what is the impact on the planning if you are going away, who's going to cover for your work. So it's not my responsibility anymore. I don't have to think for you. You have to think for yourself, basically. So yes, it has great perks and benefits, but also it, it comes with great responsibility. I use the Spider-Man quote actually <laughs> on that day, um, but really, then you have to really to take responsibility. And then I made it clear, if we go for this uh, unlimited holiday policy, I only focus here on the results and the outcomes. Make sure that the work is covered when you are away, that people who should be briefed about what's happening or know what uh, has to happen and everything is communicated. So I'm not the coordinator, so it's less work for me, but more work for people to organize themselves and at first, I can say there are people who told me like, okay, then I will never take holidays because then it's too much work for me. It's like, well, then this is the moment to take responsibility for you and think really as a whole, you have an important responsibility. We are like 14 people. So every person counts and every decision we make counts. And I'm happy we moved to this model, but it took adaptation because again, for a while people were just putting the responsibility on me to figure it out when it's good to go on holiday for who. And now these days, it's not anymore my responsibility. They talk with a craft leader. They look into the planning. They know that they either have to prepare the work before they go to holidays or make sure they brief the right people, etc. And then they book and then they go. So now we have much more flexible holidays. Uh, people take days off here and there, or people take two weeks here and there, and they don't have to stress about uh, what is interesting here is the number of holidays. So let's say we have 30 days and people will just use the 30 days because there's a bad feeling if you lost holidays. And now you don't lose anything because you have everything, right? So people just have to take the time off as they feel. But it's then again, the more responsibility on my end to remind, hey, people, like once in a while, check on yourself. And I have to keep my eyes open when I see people a bit... Um, tense or cringy at work and say, maybe you should take some time off and don't worry about your days of holiday because there's no days, basically. 
So it, it, it changes really the way of working. Yeah. yeah, if I can comment on that before Joachim goes, it, it feels like, again, like jumping a couple of steps from this process of like first having the talent density where where people who you have are just absolutely autonomous, you know, killers yeah. in their in their own field. And then having the uh, the culture of feedback that I'm, you know, I wanted to bring up in a little bit. And then the net, like the third step from that is actually removing the policies because if you ensured strong peer to peer accountability, you've ensured high level of talent, and now you can take away the policies, the guardrails, if you will. But now you kind of like took away the guardrails with no context, without you know making sure that the people are independent, autonomous, without having the uh, the feedback culture. And just being like, hey, guys, this is actually a good thing. It's like, yes, it is. But it's just same as, you know, I would let go my dog into a forest and be like, hey, be free. <laughs> like, this is awesome. You always wanted to run free. Here you go. Like, as much as you want. Like, she should die of hunger and thirst because I haven't taught her to, you know, to be independent. And that's and that's the uh, that's the way I kind of see it. Like, the intent is good, but the you know the person getting this is is just not equipped to to um yeah to use it anyway Joachim what do you have yeah I, I think the keeper test uh wanted to spend some time on that it's an interesting concept that they have at Netflix where you know an employee can ask their supervisor for performance feedback uh, and they call it the keeper test where the employee asks hey how much would you fight to keep me if I would say that I'm leaving for another job tomorrow. And they have these kind of like three answers there that I'd fight a lot to keep you. Second one would be your, you know, your performance is this and this hasn't been going really well, this one thing. So I wouldn't keep uh, fight that much to keep you or I don't know if I would keep you. And then there's the third option, which is like, I'm quite worried about your performance in these areas. And if you'd be leaving, I wouldn't fight for you. So I, I think, oh. like, yeah, those, like, in cases one and like two and three, the there's of course the possibility that, like, what they say in the book is that the employee would then have time to work on their performance and, like, get like <laughs> things in order, and then come back in a few months to get another keeper test done. I think the good thing here is that like performance reviews like don't have to be a heavy process so this this is very light and sort of like immediate and it's more that the accountability is, is on both sides so the supervisor needs to have sort of like that because they know that the question will come up at some point that they need to be you know looking at what people how they are performing and be ready to give feedback but also the accountability is on the other side for the employee to actually ask for that feedback mm -hmm. and not sort of all of a sudden get into a, into a situation where they're le being let go. Um, so I, I think like the hard thing, of course, is like this, this feels sort of like a, for an introvert like me, like, like 15, 20 years ago, I would have been put into a situation to go and ask these kind of questions. It would have been super hard. Uh, to to do that, um, so I think like, it is it is tough. But what do you guys think about this? The performance review part, uh, yeah, or the whole process of like creating this accountability for the like that's the whole thing. If you don't give create this kind of rigid 
performance review process, which is heavy and all like, you know, what somebody at McKenzie would say how you do it. Like if you do the Netflix style, what do you think about that? I don't like so they, they did have these keeper tests where, where you would go in and ask something. But I don't know, again, what was their process? for evaluation of performance. I'm sure they have a process where they have a regular check-ins and then the managers who have hired people actually know at what point they need to make the decisions because you can't kind of go through the uh, the whole uh, probation period without doing any kind of a checkups and then be at the six month mark or whatever the mark is, four month and be like, oh uh, yeah, actually I'm not gonna keep that person. It's like, why? Well, you didn't, you didn't pass any kind of a, you know, you didn't tell the person anything. So I think, think they have a process of running this but inside that process there there can be checkups that come in from the employee side where the employee can go in and kind of ask the current status and what what you know is it cold or, or warm or hot but i think it's extremely brutal it like like going in and asking like would you fight to keep me and <laughs> And, you know you've been in the company for a week and like i don't know like honestly no, not right now, but, you know, keep, keep doing what you're doing. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know how this works in practice, to be honest. It feels like not the type of thing that would work in practice, given especially all the different type of cultures. Uh, asking this question from your manager during your probation is, is kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think if a question is triggering for sure, like, uh, would you fight for the person? I, uh, and I think you raise a good point here, Miska, about as, at least in the teams in Europe, we have quite international as well, like culture. And it depends really on the certain sensibility. And I could see that kind of question triggering quickly. I think in Europe, we are more like also about the job you keep, you know, there's a long probation uh, time period. You don't fire people in a week. There's a notice period. So all these things, uh, it would be interesting to see how it fits. I think the culture, but I, I think in the framing, it's, yeah, it's for me, it sounds a bit harsh uh, in the framing of it. <laughs> I also read yeah. that, that, that this is Reed Hastings. He's, he's, you know, he's wrote a book and, and what actually happens might not be actually what he writes. Like, I'm sure it's in the ballpark. I'm sure some things are very close to it, but as he mentions in the book, what, you know, the, for example, the, uh, the, the feedback part, like prepare to be in a super aggressive culture where you get always like tons of feedback. And then some people join and they're like, well, I didn't get really any kind of feedback. It's like, well, you know, and then he talks about creating processes to facilitate these things that he wants to happen automatically. So actually processes come in many, many, many times in the book because it's not enough to say, this is what I want. You have to facilitate the things that you want to happen in your company. You have to keep on telling the same things because otherwise it will be just something in your mind and maybe something you wrote on a blog post or a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so if Joachim doesn't have something, I, I wanted to talk about the, uh, the feedback part, because I think that is the most difficult part for companies to, to do and to keep running. Because as you know, the, the way Net, Netflix's feedback structure works is in order to give feedback, you have to kind of cross four points. It has to be with a positive intent. So you're giving feedback, you're trying to come in from the point of improving that person's performance and not just, you know, kind of being frustrated at somebody like, oh, I can't stand Sophie. Like she's doing all the wrong things. So let me just out of frustrations, tell her what I really think. <laughs> That's not feedback. <laughs> That's wrong. And you can't do that. Then it has to be actionable. So you're actually taking steps of thinking like what the person could improve 
and what are you know what are the components that would make it better and they get do multiple different examples of it but basically taking a step and kind of digesting your your feedback to a point where the person can 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 um either accept or reject it which is actually the fourth point then i'm going to jump in the third point um one thing that came in in the feedback part was that it it was supposed to be always appreciated and they had this perfect example of this hollywood exec at netflix doing this big talk and somebody like five layers below him like some manager just interrupting it in the middle of the meeting and telling the, this is executive that dude you're wrong on this one like it doesn't work the way you're explaining <laughs> and people shut like the, there was a new employee in the room he kind of shut his pants because you can't do that in hollywood like no way like the boss is always right and after the meeting the executive kind of went back to the manager and said hey thanks man that was uh, that was good feedback and in the discussion afterwards in the meeting where the new hire talked to the executive asked like it was you know kind of crazy that that manager did and the executive told the new hire that i'm gonna fire you if you don't raise things up because feedback going up is even more important than feedback coming from the top to the bottom because the mistakes you make on the top are much bigger in the in the uh you know with their impact than the mistakes you make on the lower level so that's why the loop of feedback where it's always appreciated is important so that you're encouraged to give feedback towards people who are higher than you on in the letter. So I think these elements, positive intent, actionable, appreciated, accepted, or rejected, that make the feedback loop happen are incredibly difficult to implement on day-to-day -day basis. Like think about the, um, you know, I'm just gonna say, think about the balls that it requires to call out your CEO. In, inside a big meeting, like, hey, uh, I think, I think this is not the uh, the correct way of of doing this. Like this um, vacation policies, the way it went down was actually not good because this is what happened and so forth. I'm sure the CEO would appreciate it, but not many people would have the courage to do that kind of a feedback. Mm. Yeah, I think like when that happens in a company, that somebody actually like, yeah. you know, says something in a you know all hands meeting. Uh, to the yeah. CEO, uh, I think if there is praise and you know there's recognition for that yes. effort that they put in, like then that company will be in a strong position for sure. And, and they had an example also with with we doing some kind of all hand, and somebody did give him feedback there, and he was kind of dismissive towards the feedback. And then the person who gave him the feedback actually sent a long email later how she felt when he gave the feedback, and not only that how she felt, but overall like what kind of uh, example it sets then reed goes and answers it with the way that he answers to the whole company kind of like ccing that whole email like hey i did wrong this is not the way to do it and and i'm you know kind of like this person is right and that is appreciating the feedback and i think that is the uh, the the example that the leadership needs to show all the time in order to have a culture where the feedback loop is actually functioning and that creates the peer-to-peer -peer accountability and then that allows you to remove these kind of a policies around it. Yep, yeah. totally. So I'm, I'm going to actually give an example. So uh, like this is like, let's jump in on a time machine and go back to like 2013. Uh, that was when I worked at Supercell and um, Joachim was, was just, you know, you left at 2012 or 13 as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like this is an organization almost like 10 years ago. And I'm going to use it as example because... This was, and probably still is, so it has nothing to do to the supercell today, but it, like back then, I feel like that, that was a epiphany of this type of a culture. 
Um, this was post downsizing of the company. So they grew quite significantly with another studio in another city. Then they kind of cut those down. Uh, they weren't performing and went into this model that was clearly very much inspired by the Netflix deck, had a very, very strong peer-to-peer -peer accountability, incredible talent density, uh, a very sort of an anti-process approach, which I think was mixed in the sense that it's anti-policies, not processes. As you're reading the Netflix book, you're understanding the processes are important. Policies are the ones that you get rid of. So, you know, anyways, but the difference that I feel that, you know, kind of, it took me back to the memory lane reading this book. And the differences was that that organization really lacked the feedback loop and they didn't have an HR person and actually Supercell is hiring the HR lead only now, like 10 years or 11 years after being live. Um, and the game leads in that organization had a massive amount of ownership and they were called mini CEOs. Uh, they didn't really have a unified way of leading teams because they were very anti-process type of organization. And everything was circled around getting shit done. And that of course created this, these small autonomous teams that got shit done. So looking back at it, like they had the talent densities, but they didn't have these policies uh, and then they didn't have policies, but the kind of a piece in the middle, because the way the Netflix describes it, you have talent density, then you have the feedback loop, and then you remove the policies. And what I feel like, like kind of thinking back at those times, it was talent density, there wasn't the feedback loop, and then you remove the, 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 uh, the, the policies and processes. So in my opinion, just my own opinion, created a, a little bit of an organization of, of whispering because there was an open feedback. It was more of a feedback of like, hey, what do you think about this person? Like it was totally normal to ask somebody like, what do you think about Joachim? Or what do you think about Sophie? Just among the employees. And that was like the first time I've been in an organization where that was considered as a normal type of a discussion. It also had uh, this sort of a, like a closed group decision-making process. I don't know how it functions with Netflix, but it wasn't as transparent as the Netflix where everything is open. Everybody got the context because talent density is so high. So you're, you are able to, to communicate to everybody. It definitely had the sink or swim type of organization. There was a lot of terminations during the probation period. And I think they implemented that part of the Netflix model perfectly. And, um, you know, only, only after reading this book, I, I really understood that, that the uh, the element that was missing was the feedback, and uh, I think with the uh, with the lack of feedback, they probably have it now. But with the lack of feedback, they would have probably increased the retention of the talent that they were acquiring, and I think they would have been able to to you know to create a little bit more unified ways of of driving the teams. But you know what can I say? That organization was incredibly incredibly successful. Um, you know, tens of billions of dollars. So it's very hard to criticize something that is nearly perfect, but you always have to look at, you know, ways of, of thinking about like what, how can perfect be even better? So I don't know, those, those were kind of like my points. I don't know if Joachim, you felt the same thing, like kind of reading this book and, and reminiscing uh, like eight years back. Yeah, definitely. It's like, there's, there's so much similarities there. I, I think like some of the things regarding the, the discussions, like, the cool ideas like this under the radar sort of like game idea that then turns into a game project that supercell i think those like there was no facilitation going on for that but i think that was the strength there of having this kind of like you know in the kitchen sort of like everybody's 
like they are for a coffee break and they're discussing, they're playing a prototype, uh, very sort of organic uh, way of discovering, you know, the magical games that they then created. I think that that was sort of facilitated by having nothing there, <laughs> like no no policies, no 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 processes, nothing, not, neither of those those functions but, really. But here's here's the difference: you know. the feedback that came in for the builds. Uh, the internal build was amazing. Like it was the highest level feedback you can get and it was expected. So there was a process of once you have a build, you release it, people play it on the weekends, people play it on the week and you are expected and celebrated to write insane amount of feedback to the game team and and like truly, truly celebrate. The people who wrote the most feedback were, were you know, on the pedestal and that created the culture of giving a lot of feedback to the build. Now, looking back at it, like there was no feedback giving to the people, like it was only on the software, which is kind of weird because that that process already existed. And what I'm trying to say is like with that process, according to the Netflix model, that should predominantly exist to giving the feedback to the people to help the people to improve and to overachieve. Uh, But now it was kind of like for the game to improve and overachieve, but never to the people. Yeah, you're you're selecting the the feedback that is sort of fun to give. Yes. Um, yeah. Because it's it's yeah it's it's very hard to give feedback to the people. Very very hard. And um, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you guys want to talk about freedom and responsibility? I think quickly like that that aspect. I think that the whole trust thing there. Uh, I think that's that's sort of like their you know this kind of vision to build a company on freedom and responsibility and having that trust. But I think they're, they're still on that journey. Uh, so I think like one of those things, thinking about like the whole responsibility for, let's say, a, a game team, that you if you have the accountability there, uh, the people are holding each other accountable and everything, like the there has there will be some kind of trust forming. So I think like that's that's most likely something that, I don't know, the book doesn't really talk enough about like at that team level, how the trust forms when you have freedom and responsibility to make, and then to make, I, I think that they're talking a lot about the decision-making, mm-hmm. um, but specifically like the trust inside teams is lacking in that book. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I felt that way. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the key thing that, that always came out is like being just transparent and that transparency gives the context. And then inside that context, people can make the decision, but they have freedom to make the decisions, but they carry also the, uh, you know, the good or the bad of the decision they made. And as a, as a, as a boss, you're not coming in and making the decision for them and getting them to carry, you know, the consequences of the decision you made. So uh, I think, I think that's the, uh, that's the kind of a loop that they do. But um, Sophie, you wanted to mention something about this because I wanted to talk about the uh, the, the goal of the company is not to make people happy. That that's almost like the uh, the countering of of kind of like your approach. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, it comes uh, back to why the company exists, and I think Netflix very clearly was set to create, you know, uh, a very successful entertainment company, and really focus on uh, being like a, uh, this big platform what it is today. And uh, very clearly, it's not here to create an environment. So I, I really believe that organization and the culture, they look like their leaders. And if Reed 
uh, drive was really the performance and creating success, financial success being like, I think the number one that was really even like Patty McCord when she was here to set the culture, they were really set to become number one, like big, huge. So I think it serves really well than the culture they have built. And just to make it clear, like if you're here, you're here to play the big game with us. Again, with the analogy of the sport team, uh, I, I do like actually the part, I think, although sometimes I, I really talk about culture and having a team that feels safe, happy. I make it very clear as well for my team, we are not a family. It's not true. It uh, First of all, it's, it's technically not true, right? And uh, a family, you love the family, I would say almost unconditionally. I would not say it's the case at work, you know, there, there's some conditions, right? So I think it's actually good to remind as well when you work creative teams and you want to create a good environment to remind that people are here still in the work environment. It's it's not just pure leisure and no matter what you do, we will uh, be in this journey together. So I do like the analogy of a sport team. However, I think again, at least for me, the goal of why I, I am in games why I create a studio and, and work with teams. I do enjoy a lot working, you know, meaningfully with people. And that's that's why the culture I build looks like me because I care about these things. And I would probably not find myself enjoying myself in a culture like Netflix personally, because that's important actually, the interaction, maybe this trust that we talked about beyond with others and you can make mistakes and you don't have to fear like, Oh no, I have like lower points on my scorecard and I need to make it up in the next months to stay in the league. That would be quite anxious. And for me, it's not my reason of living. So I think again, it comes back to why your organization exists. How are you building a culture that serves the reason why you exist and then embracing it. And I think for Netflix, it works really well. But yeah, for me and my beliefs in games and how I want to make games personally doesn't serve me. Yeah, yeah. I, one thing to add there regarding the sports team, I was thinking like, have you have both of you seen the Last Dance, Dance document of Michael Come Jordan? On. Come on, everybody. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like thinking about like me, go back to Supercell, like 2012, you know, how Clash of Clans team operated, like all the mental sort of like games, like, you know, like motivating yourself, motivating the team, pushing the team, like, you know, there's limited time, there's only, you know, this much runway in the company, and you have this really good, talented team. I, I think, like, man, that I think that's, that's the best sort of like analogy from like last dance to, to thinking about the Clash of Clans team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but even even in that setting, like there was such a clear context, limited one way, things yeah. are gonna, like we're going to close down the doors if if this doesn't become successful. So that, of course, creates a context of like what kind of decisions are we making? We're we making decisions that are most straightforward, uh, most towards yeah. the goal, you know. And and then everybody moves fast. Everybody makes clear decisions around that context that was given. So. Yeah, yeah, leading through context, one of the uh, one of the more important thing, and, and leading yeah. through transparency. Yeah, exactly. But doesn't work if your company is not talent dense, because people who are who are not experienced or not ready for this just melt. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that this was a fantastic discussion. This was definitely one of the uh, most impactful book books for me. 
Um, and it seems like you guys also enjoyed reading this one and, and kind of like debating around, around the different concepts. Definitely works for games, but not for all game companies and shouldn't be adopted for all game companies. So uh, anybody who's listening to this and finding some of the uh, tidbits interesting, I think the most important thing is to just kind of go back and understand what are the steps in order before you can you know unlock the next thing in your organization before you can remove the next thing so that's important but if you chose choose if any organization chooses to take one thing out of this i would say it's the uh leading through context uh that's super important and we've all been in organizations where the leadership treats you like kids with with the internal pr with the external pr it's um it's it, it downgrades your team, your employees. Just act like if if you have to tell them stories, then you probably hired wrong people. And I, I doubt that you have those type of people who need to hear stories. You have people who are smart. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. All right. <laughs> On that note, catch us in a you know in a month as soon as we get through the uh, the next book. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you so much, Joachim. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. It was. Th thanks, Miska. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.